Welcome to the Ideas Exchange by ASX, connecting you with investment experts, market updates, and ideas. I'm Rory Cunningham, Senior Manager of Investment Products at ASX, and this is our regular podcast covering everything from investment trends through to different ways to invest using a variety of products. A quick note about this podcast. Information is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decisions. Please refer to ASX's full disclaimer with respect to this podcast on the section of the ASX website titled The Ideas Exchange by ASX. Welcome to The Ideas Exchange. I'm your host, Rory Cunningham from ASX. Today we welcome Vahari Ross as Portfolio Manager at Antipodes and covers global equities. Vahari has a wealth of experience as a Portfolio Manager and specifically within global equities research. Vahari, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rory, for having me. So before we get into it, Vahari, maybe do you just want to give our listeners a bit of background as to who Antipodes are and what your role involves with Antipodes? Absolutely. So Antipodes is a fundamental active global equities manager. We're based here in Sydney, uh, but we also have offices in the UK and in North America. And we have both global long portfolios as well as global long short portfolios. The long portfolio is available listed on the ASX under the ticker AGX1. Uh, That's an active ETF where investors can get access to a portfolio of global stocks um, in a single trade, and there's no minimum investment. So you can trade AGX1 just like any normal share. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was launched over five years ago, and it mirrors our longstanding global long-only fund, uh, which is based on our pragmatic value approach. And pragmatic value really means paying the right price mm-hmm. relative to a company's resilience and growth profile. And so our portfolio will feature quite high-quality, high-growth names like Microsoft, through to companies in the financial space and the commodities space as well. So you get that full spectrum of exposure to growth and resilience. And and can you talk us through the process to find those opportunities? Absolutely. So I think one of the key ways of identifying pragmatic value is understanding change. And I think change is one of those things that is a real constant in markets. But because markets are made up of humans that can become emotional or extrapolate or you know have fear and greed the change can often be misconstrued so we tend to focus on you know identifying cyclical change identifying structural change as well as socio macro changes and i think sometimes what that means is that we can avoid you know those classic value traps where a stock that otherwise looks cheap is actually being disrupted and is therefore a trap but also growth traps on the other side where if a business, you know, enters an exuberance phase in terms of its valuation, uh, whether that's actually justified by structural change or whether it's going to actually have a shakeout and 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 be a bit of a trap as well. So that's that's a key part of what we do. And when we pull all of that together, it's really about paying that right price uh, relative to the growth profile that is available to us. It's what you're paying for and what are you getting in return. Um, and so as a result, we have a portfolio of about 60 companies that's truly eclectic and truly global uh, Will investment in the US, Europe, emerging markets, um, and all around the world, really. Okay. That's brilliant. Let's start with maybe a bit of the, the fear side of the, the equation 
And and what I mean by that is is really around interest rates. Uh, over the last couple of years, there's been uh, record interest rate rises, and and as we sit here uh, today. In the US, the cash rate is about 5.3%. Inflation is at 3.1%, so it's come down quite materially from where it was at its highs. Uh, and the S&P is sitting at almost 5,000, so, so up around all-time highs. In Australia, the cash rate is 4.35%. Inflation's 4.1%, so it seems to be a bit more under control as compared to last year. And the S&P ASX 200 index at all-time highs, around 7,600. And as I mentioned, you know, reserve and central banks around the world, the, the interest rate rises naturally have a flow-on effect into equity markets. And there's so much speculation about what the next 12 months look like, um, particularly in the US. So I'm wondering, can we breathe a collective sigh of relief uh, that interest rate rises are over? Um, or should we still tread with some some caution about sticky inflation? Well, I mean, I think that's quite a broad-based question in terms of thinking about all the puts and takes when it comes to inflation. I think we have reached the peak of the hiking cycle and the sort of fear around that that we saw in 2023, but we are seeing stickiness in the inflation level itself, and particularly in the US, and a lot of that is driven by that services sector. You know, goods inflation has come well and truly down, you know, that sort of COVID supply and demand constraints of have come out of the come out of the base, but the services inflation mm. has stayed high, and a lot of that is driven by what, what's called shelter in the technical term, which is rents, and also you know I think something called owners' equivalent rents, which is what people who own their homes think they can rent their house out for, and that is actually a remarkably sticky, and it's it stayed high and it's mm. staying high because there is actually shortages in housing. There's lots of other reasons why that number is as high as it is. So we might end up sort of being stuck at a slightly higher inflation level than what the market might expect. And that obviously has implications for interest rates mm. because as much as, you know, at the start of the year, market was pricing in, you know, six rate cuts in the US, but that doesn't really gel very well with uh, the fact that there's not going to be any recession. You know, typically you don't see rate cuts when there's no recession. So I think we'd still think that at some point the Fed will start bringing rates down in a sensible, gradual, careful way. But even in their most recent minutes, you saw that they're, they're worried about doing it too fast and too quickly. So I think that's something that is very relevant to markets. It's something that everybody's watching. We're sort of not out of the woods when it comes to how that's going to go. And there's also so many other puts and takes around government spending going on this year. It's an election year. You know, you're going to see um, more spending taking place. It's really about what flavour of spending you're going to get, whether it be Trump or Biden. You know, is it going to be more around decarbonisation or is it going to be tax cuts? You know, either way, there's going to be spending going on. And the, sort of interesting what you said about the collective sigh of relief, because mm. high interest rates actually don't affect everybody equally. And it's only about a third of people who have mortgages that are very much impacted, getting crunched, you know, by this high rate sort of scenario. But there's the other third of people who own their own homes outright and are net savers, they've probably don't feel that way at all about high rates. They're, in fact, you know, spending more than ever, as we've seen in the data. Meanwhile, the renters are actually really seeing the impact, believe it or not, because people who have mortgages are pushing that increase in cost onto the rental market. Those people also typically may have credit card debt or auto loans, which are also floating rate. 
So it isn't, you know, for those people certainly would be a collective sigh of relief, but um, for a lot of other parts of the economy, you know, who frankly they've been carrying the the economy over the last 12 months, they may be, feel quite differently about that rate cycle. Yeah, well, it's interesting when you <clears throat> you consider retirees and, and where they're going to put their, their capital. We had uh, Gemma Dale on this podcast last year talking about exactly this. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, investors have choice as, as to where they allocate their, their capital. And I know even if I re- reflect on my own parents, you know, they're quite happy now to put their, their capital in term deposits that are, that are getting them 5%. Um, so absolutely, I, I, I hear what you're saying when inflation and high interest rates impacts uh, different segments of the of the economy and the consumer base. Yeah, I think the other sort of thing that springs to mind when you talk about that is, you know, not all economies are dealing with inflation in the same way as well. So, you know, again, we have a truly global perspective. You know, that perspective I just gave you was very relevant to the US, very relevant to Australia uh, and the UK. But we've also got, you know, inflation coming down in a material way, rates coming down and have already started to move down in a lot of emerging markets like Latin America. And that's actually very supportive of the consumer environment in those sorts of regions um, you know, you've got deflation in China, meanwhile, and there's sort of stimulus that needs to happen there. So, you know, not all markets are created equal when it comes to this thing that everybody focuses on to such a big extent. Yeah. Let's stay at that macro level because as a, as a global equities manager, you're looking obviously across the world. What are some of those key macro and market developments that, that you saw in 20, as 2023 drew, drew to a close? I think uh, one of the biggest things that we've you know really observed in the last 12 months, particularly in 2023, was that extreme market concentration that you saw, you know, at the end of last year, that magnificent seven mm. of stocks, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, NVIDIA and Tesla, they made up, you know, 25% of the US index. That's an extraordinary level of concentration mm. um, of market cap in so, so few names, literally 493 other stocks um, are making up, you know, 75% of that market cap. Um, so it doesn't happen very often, that type of extreme you know, it's happened, it's actually the most extreme since sort of the dot-com era. And sort of to put it into context, you know, you've got such a narrow, you know, those seven stocks generated almost 100% performance last year and the rest of the S&P was up only 6%. You know, I'm not necessarily saying that this is the same as that dot-com era because in the case of that magnificent seven, there's actually quite a bit of dispersion amongst them. But generally speaking, it's been backed by strong operating results as well. And that's very different to say .com where there was a lot of, you know, no earnings backing some of those valuations. But nonetheless, that was something we we saw. What we're expecting to see now is for that to start to broaden out. We saw that start to happen at the end of last year, fueled by that expectation of, of lower rates coming into 2024. But we might start to see divergence there, you know, not only with that broader-based section of stocks start to perform better, you know, based on their operating performance, of course, but also more divergence among the MAG7 itself. You know, they've been talked about as this single entity cohort, but actually if you think about it, there's a lot of differences in how they're performing. Even this year, you know, you've seen Apple down year-to-date. You've seen Tesla down more than 20% year-to-date. And that's been based on operating results, really, and expectations versus, you know, the growth you're ultimately going to get, which is central to our philosophy. But, of course, you've continued to see strong results from companies like, you know, Microsoft, uh, Meta 
and, you know, NVIDIA more recently as well. So that's one element. The other thing I think is really topical for 2024 is that more, you know, nearly half the world's population is going to the polls in terms of elections. You know, they could prove quite important for markets this year. There's a lot of talk about it in the lead up and what the implications of that might be, which can create some volatility. You know, it might impact the geopolitical environment, you know, particularly, you know, in the US, depending on who gets in. And I think the topics that sort of come up over and over again when thinking about it are things like national security, relocalisation, you know, bringing manufacturing back home, security around energy and the sourcing of energy, um, and obviously things like Taiwan and those types of dynamics come into play. I think that the end result of all of that debate and thinking is it goes back to the point I made earlier, which is more the likelihood of more spending at that government level. You know, that Amer- maybe it's America first, um, maybe it's about being more conciliatory to the rest of the globe. But either way, the sort of net result is probably more spending, which may well be supportive of markets. Thanks, Vahari. You, you did mention emerging markets. So I'm wondering from a macro perspective, what, it, what are you seeing in those markets and countries? Yeah, so I think emerging markets are a really interesting and fruitful place for us to find investment opportunities at the moment. You know, a lot of emerging markets, you know, because of the turmoil of what happened to a lot of these economies through COVID, and the sort of the aftermath of that, you've, you're seeing some really compelling valuation opportunities. So we uh, have some significant exposure to Latin America, um, be it it's particularly Brazil and Mexico, um, and also China as well. And, you know, what you're seeing, you know, on the Latin American side of things is a scenario where these markets are trading on trough multiples relative to their history And therefore, there's an opportunity to buy stocks that are actually relatively defensive, they're relatively high quality and have growth potential at significant discounts um, to their historical valuations. Um, So that's what we're seeing in Brazil. We're seeing that in Mexico as well. China is a a different story. With China, it's it's a really interesting market in the sense that it's trading on a 20-year trough multiple. You know, a lot of foreign investors have you know, found it too hard or there's too much fear around it. I think what you're seeing is this, you know, that classic market risk premium come into that market. Many, many stocks now look very cheap. But of course, you have to be circumspect about what the circumstances are that have created that fear. It's interesting that the Chinese government was willing to curtail their property sector. It's something you'd never, ever in a million years see a Western government do to their property sector. And the reason for that is because of the blowback on obviously economic growth, but also on consumer sentiment. So you've seen that impact in China. You've had the property developers who were crossing those red lines get pulled into line, you know, have um, have the access to their funding uh, pulled and stuff like that. And I think what we're now seeing is a surplus of inventory. You're, you know, that's going to take a while to come out um, in the wash in terms of it being part of the base of China GDP and then for that economy to sort of grow again from that base. Uh, But the rest of the economy continues to get strong support. I think one of the things that we're doing in China in terms of our exposure is being quite surgical about where we will go, where we will invest. Um, So we have a number of the internet names. You know, we've got companies like Alibaba and Baidu, Tencent, they're all doing buybacks. You know, Alibaba's buying back 8% of its of its stock. It's a remarkably large number. It's still very cash generative. It's growing. Um, it's a national champion. Uh, we have a company like King D, which is a 
you know, the Oracle SAP equivalent of China, again, a national champion growing rapidly, and it has a structural growth tailwind behind it. It's not dependent on what the Chinese property sector is doing, what the Chinese consumer is doing. Uh, we also have exposure to companies like Galaxy, which is the, you know, the Macau gaming play. You know, it's interesting because Macau gaming has recovered um, to more than 20% above the pre-COVID level, whilst, for example, travel to the US hasn't recovered. So it's really about being considered about where the opportunities are and where the recovery actually has been in China rather than blanketly buying China as a group. And I think, you know, as the Chinese government ultimately brings stimulus back into the economy, I think they've been a bit reticent to do it because once you've taken that step of you know, of giving someone a crack on the knuckles. You sort of didn't want to... I think there was a little bit of concern about, well, we can't bail them out now because we were the ones who created this problem. But you are starting to see gradual change in that in that thought process. You're seeing stimulus now come back into that economy and you're actually seeing foreign investors start to return uh, to the market as well. So we do think there's some interesting opportunities there, but again, be surgical. Okay. So in light of the, the, the macro environment, US emerging markets, how, how are you actually positioning your portfolio? Uh, so the portfolio is positioned across sort of three key pillars. We tend to have an exposure to uh, sort of the mature cyclical bucket, we would call that. You know, that tends to be sort of high quality domestic champions. We also have an exposure across financials, both developed and emerging market and also a cohort of what we would call global cyclicals. So that's really this playing into this dynamic of in a lower rate environment, you know, and continued buoyancy in economies like the US, it's actually a ripe opportunity for these global cyclicals to inflect upwards. So that's companies in the fertiliser space, in the chemical space, in the auto space. These, they're all trading at significant discounts because of, you know, that uncertainty that we've had around rates and, and the trajectory of the economy. And those will, you know, we expect to do well um, in that benign economic scenario with lower rates. Uh, we also have an exposure to uh, defensives. You know, we're still conscious of a lot of tail risks sitting within markets around the world, particularly that market concentration risk. But more broadly, you know, that includes companies like uh, Tes- Tesco, um, Diageo, businesses that are dominant in the, in their spheres, and again, generate a lot of cash and are trading at compelling valuations and also in the healthcare space. So that's an area that's had a lot of attention, particularly in 2023, in particular in that sort of diabetes drug space. But these companies we have, we have Merck and Sanofi, they have big immuno-oncology businesses. That's clearly, you know, there's big tailwinds behind that space. Unfortunately, as, as people get older, you know, the propensity to get cancer goes up. Uh, and there's a lot of innovation happening in that space. They also have things like pet uh, pet care um, and vaccines, which are quite defensive in nature as well. And again, they're trading on quite compelling valuations, particularly in comparison to the, those sort of diabetes champions. Uh, we also have an important part, given that change framework that we employ in our portfolio construction, we have a, a cohort of companies that are exposed to favourable structural change. So that includes things like the monetization of cloud and AI, uh, as well as the energy transition. And it's important for us to identify those shifts, but also find pragmatic value ways of playing those shifts as well, rather than seeking to you know jump on a structural change bandwagon and, and overpaying. So to bring that together, the portfolio overall has 60 securities across 
those three pillars being mature and cyclical type companies, structural change winners, as well as the defensive cohort of companies as well. So you have a truly global portfolio uh, with businesses listed all around the world, but again, with that pragmatic value approach to finding compelling valuations relative to the growth that we're going to get. Okay. And so what sectors then are you focused on at the moment and why? So I think one of the big themes um, is AI and that's not going anywhere. Uh, We're at the early stage of what the investment in AI will look like, what the monetization of AI will look like. But what we can see is that it ties in very much so with that transition to the cloud and the incumbents who are already well positioned in that space. If you think about you know, the biggest users of graphic pos- or buyers rather of graphic post- processing units from NVIDIA, they're actually the big tech companies. 75% of you know, the, their sales are coming from those big tech companies and from China. So you've got this real capital deployment that's taken place ahead of time, you know, before the monetization's happened. It's sort of interesting because the market's very interested in this thematic. We have exposure to that in a number of ways. We have the shift to the cloud, obviously, that's still to happen and is still ongoing for companies like Amazon and Microsoft. But we also have an investment in Oracle. I think that's a really interesting one. It's a it's a business that a lot of investors wrote off, you know, a decade ago. But I think the incumbency advantage really comes to the fore for a company like Oracle. I think a lot of the cloud transition, if you think about it, um, has already happened in the consumer-facing side. Mm. You know, we've already got Apple Music or Spotify. We've got Netflix. We use Microsoft applications on the cloud. But the, the transition hasn't taken place in the same way in the less exciting part, in the infrastructure, the you know, ERP, that's still to take place. And as that shift happens, the market opportunity of that is enormous and it's going to generate growth of 15 to 20% per annum. And we look at Oracle, that was maybe a little bit slower to move. You know, they've got banks and hospitals and, and so on, you know, conservative, risk-averse um, enterprises that are using their software. You know, they don't want to rock the boat when it comes to making that transition themselves. So you've got this real advantage in being the incumbent provider. The Oracle cloud infrastructure business is growing up now at more than 50% per annum. And as they augment that baseline infrastructure with software and platform capabilities, they're getting three to five times the value from those customers. So it's, it's profitability accretive as they make that shift. And you've got a business as a result that's growing at 10 to 15% per annum and trading at a discount to the S&P at 20 times. So that's a real pragmatic value way of playing thematic that is actually pretty well known and, you know, the market is generally pretty exuberant about, but they're actually not necessarily looking at some of these, you know, obvious winners simply because they might be operating in a in a less less exciting part of, of that transition. And then another sector we're really focused on is the energy transition. Again, this is uh, an area that's had a lot of time and attention now, what you're really seeing here is a confluence of circumstances that have come together to make it a reality right now. It's something that uh, where we've had you know, consumer acceptance of climate change, we've got governments putting spending behind you know, and regulation behind it as well. You've had a big change in 
technology capabilities in terms of actually being able to decarbonise in a way that's economically viable. So this is something that's a multi-decade you know, investment cycle that we're looking to invest behind as well. It's going to be in the developed world, you know, it's estimated it's going to be three, 2 to 3% of GDP per annum um, for the next decade. And there's a lot of different ways you can play that. You know, you can do energy efficiency, you can do abatement, you can use sustainable forestry and things like that. But when it comes to efficiency, it's quite broad-based. You know, efficiency is sort of less on the cutting edge. It's really about putting insulation into your home. It's about using energy-efficient air conditioning and reusing materials. But because of that, it's actually quite broad-based as well. And to give you an example, in places like France, you can imagine all the buildings are all higgledy-piggledy and so on. (laughs) To actually put insulation into that is it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. Um, it requires certain, you know, injectable technology and things like that. And that's going to, you know, triple the renovation rate because mm. 90% of buildings have to be retrofitted. And there's companies like uh, Saint-Gobain that we have an investment in. It's French-based building materials company. And you might think, oh, that's a bit <laughs> dull. But the reality is, looking forward, it's a business that has better growth, better profitability than it had in the past because of this sustainability tailwind that sits behind it. And interestingly, because of high mortgage rates, it's the stock that's been sold down because it's attached, you know, the market's sort of missing the point that it's attached to this building materials type scenario when really it's a sustainability company. Um, so there's there's pragmatic value ways of playing these bigger structural trend thematics. And that's really what we're looking for uh, when it comes to our, you know, our picks within the portfolio. Now, you've been very kind with us and you've shared a fair few uh, stocks that are in the portfolio already. But nothing does bring it to life like uh, stock stories. So do you have one to two stock stories that you'd be willing to share with us? Absolutely. So I've got, I've got two for you. One is really quite an exciting one, which people will be quite familiar with. That's Meta. You know, Meta is a business that is, you know, people, people actually misjudge how much this business is benefiting from AI. One of the best things that ever happened to them uh, many years ago was when Apple stopped sharing data with them. It, it, you know, stock obviously got smashed at the time, but that meant that they had to pivot. They had to invest in their own capabilities in terms of monitoring the behaviour of, of users. And it's not something that they haven't done. They've always had to proactively, you know, take content off of their, you know, monitor their platform and take content off and do all of that type of thing. But this really forced them to invest behind how to best monetize you know, the eyeballs that are that are on all of their, you know, family of apps. Mm. So you've got a business now that if you look at actually the amount of capital expenditure that's been uh, put into graphic processing units, you know, NVIDIA, one of the biggest customers, uh, as big as Microsoft, has actually been Meta. And they are now monetizing their family of app platform, you know, in an accelerated way, thanks to that investment that's been put into place. Um, you know, they're doing, you know, meta AI in terms of generative chatbots, you know, potential to take a little bit of that search volume off of Google there as well. You've got a business that, you know, in that family of apps environment is now growing its revenues from from a volume point of view at close to 20%. And if you adjust for sort of the Reality Labs investments, you're paying a high teens multiple, which is a discount again to the S&P for a business that's growing rapidly and is really one of the best places to monetize AI from here on in, in a really practical way. It's really, again, getting more yield and return out of your existing 
out of your existing business. Um, so I think that the conviction we can have around that trajectory is really, really strong as well. And then, you know, because we are a truly global portfolio, mm. um, another example I have is one in emerging markets. Brazil is a really interesting market. It's one that was really impacted by COVID. They were in recession for four years before COVID happened. And then COVID happened and inflation went through the roof. Interest rates went through the roof. The consumer was very negatively impacted by that. We're on the other side of that now. Interest rates have have already been cut about three times in Brazil. They're on their way down. You know, consumer confidence is improving. People's ability to borrow is improving. Unemployment is coming down. So you've got this real cyclical recovery. And remember, this is, you know, part of our change framework. We're looking for these cyclical um, opportunities around the world. Uh, We have a business there that we've invested in um, called Sendas Distributora. It's actually just a cash and carry grocery business. It's you know, maybe, um, you know, again, a little bit on the boring side, but what's not boring at all is the growth rates um, coming out of this business as part of participating in that consumer recovery. They actually bought a a competitor's store network just just at the wrong time, you know, when those interest rates started to really accelerate up. But what they're doing now is that they've closed them and then they're reopening them, having refurbed them. They're opening them at three times the level of sales that that they bought them for. And they're also rolling out stores across Brazil. So they're getting 13% revenue growth per annum. And then at the same time, their profits are growing at more than 20% because they're getting a huge cash flow uplift as these stores reopen and interest rates are coming down. So that debt burden's coming down rapidly for them as well. So you're getting really strong profit growth and you're paying eight and a half times for that stock. And to give you sort of a comparison there, you know, we always look to try and put our valuations into context, mm. you know, with what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, people might be really familiar with Costco. That's oh, a business yes. We've that all seen the lines everybody's been there. Morning. You know, yeah. most people have been there, let's see, maybe not everybody, but if, if you can be bothered with the lines. But as much as people might want to, you know, enjoy shopping there, to actually buy the stock, you've actually got to pay 40 times multiple. And that's an equivalent business to what these guys are doing and they're executing remarkably well. And again, you're participating in this recovery in Brazil, but you're doing it in a really quite defensive, high quality way. It's not that we have to go down that risk curve to participate. So that's another example that I have for you. And, but if I was to only pick one stock, then the stock I would choose is AGX1. And that's our listed on the ASX portfolio, long only global portfolio. It'll give investors 60 global securities from all around the world, you know, playing into a number of really interesting thematics around the cyclical opportunities around the world, structural opportunities around the world, as well as really high quality defensive businesses at compelling valuations. So that's my pick for you today. Oh, brilliant. I love a, I love a plug right at the end there. And, and what I'd strongly encourage to any of our, our listeners uh, here is to go to the Antipodes website. I think as you've got a sense from our discussion here, there's some really exciting names uh, in the portfolio, but also Vahari, I've, I've obviously watched some of the educational videos that yourself and the team put up there. It's a, it's a great opportunity really to, to learn what's happening around the world to, to understand how businesses work and, and hopefully also uh, find great investment opportunities through AGX1. So, Fahari, I suppose thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rory. It was really great to come along. And thank you to all of our listeners. We look forward to tuning in next month on the Ideas Exchange. 
Visit the ASX website asx.com.au and register for the next CEO Connect event and hear directly from CEOs of leading ASX stocks about their business vision, strategy and company's latest achievements.